Well, good morning, church. Good morning. The Lord is with you. I am a native Houstonian. I lived here about 50 years before moving away 10 years ago. And uh, I'm also prenatally a Baptist. So I have known about the testimony and witness of Tallowood Baptist Church most of my life and know what a privilege, privilege it is to stand in this pulpit knowing who's stood here over the decades past. So grateful that my friend Dwayne Brooks invited me to come and share this Sunday with you. I looked at the list. It, you've got a list of people coming. Apparently he's made, built in a crescendo and this is the starting week and there are seven weeks to come. So I'm grateful to be here with you this morning and to share scripture with you. I am impressed and pleased to know that you have afforded your pastor a sabbatical experience. It's a strange thing to be asked to address the same group of people week after week after week over decades and be expected to have something fresh to say each week. I know that from experience. It's a challenge. And it's good to have a break at times to take your head into another place and be able to be refreshed. And it is a gift both to Dwayne and to yourselves that you've allowed him this kind of break. Everybody needs a break at times, just for sanity's sake at times. Even if you're Jesus, even Jesus needed such a break. This morning we're going to be looking at a story in Mark chapter 7, if you have a Bible and want to open to that. At the end of chapter 6 in Mark, Jesus had been in a place called Gennesaret on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and huge crowds of people had gathered there. They had brought their sick. They had brought demon-possessed people. They had come to hear him teach. It was a draining time for him, a giving time, a time of ministry, but certainly very draining. And Jesus gave himself away, as he regularly does in those settings, and ministered to those crowds and then a group of religious leaders from Jerusalem came to him and challenged him. They noticed that he and his disciples were eating their food without first ritually washing their hands, the way not the law of Moses, but the traditions of the elders demanded that they do. They were supposed to pour, I think, like one and a half egg cups of water uh, over their hands one way and then the other way, and that was to ritually clean them. And Jesus didn't pay attention to those kind of ritual laws in that way. And they asked him about that. They challenged him. And Jesus said to them that they were all wrong to think that something on the outside like that could make a person impure, that impurity comes from within. He says to the crowds there in chapter 7, verses 14 to 16, he said, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that going in can defile. But the things that come out are what defile. His disciples didn't fully understand that, and so they went into a house and they asked him about that. And so he tries to explain to them pretty unequivocally. He said, nothing you eat makes you unclean. And it's not what you do on the outside that makes you unclean. It is your heart. It is what comes out of the heart that is impure. It is the heart that needs to be changed. It's not what you touch that makes you unclean. It's your heart. Demanding crowds, defiant religious fundamentalists, dense disciples. You want to get away? Need a break? Jesus certainly did. And so it was time for a retreat, for some solitude, for some silence, a time to get away. Mark 7, 24 says... 
From there, in Gennesaret, he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. This is a good time to take a look at a map, unless you just carry this part of the world around in your head really easily. Some of you do. Here's a map of northern Palestine. And you can see perhaps the modern-day border between Israel and Lebanon. The port of Haifa down the coast a bit. And then the Sea of Galilee, uh, where Jesus, uh, Sea of Galilee with Jerusalem to the south. And Jesus and his disciples had been staying at Gennesaret there on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. And that's when Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon into modern-day Lebanon for some time alone. It's the only time in Jesus' ministry when he leaves the territory of Jews proper and goes into completely non-Jewish territory. He goes about 30 or 40 miles into what would be modern-day Lebanon, and there he is absolutely certain to encounter some of those people that those religious leaders he was just having dispute with. He's going to encounter people that they would have regarded as unclean. There's no question about it. But he checks into a and b and puts a do not disturb sign on the door, turns off his phone, and he wants some time alone. He wanted not to be known, and yet Mark says he could not escape notice. Turns out even in Tyre, the city of Tyre, he's going to encounter people that had heard about him. In Mark chapter 3 verse 8, we're told that some folks from Tyre had come down and been exposed to Jesus' teaching and the stories about his ministry and his healings and his exorcisms and taken that news back to Tyre. So word circulated that this guy has checked into the B&B there and he is the Jesus that they had heard about. And that message fell on the ears of one young mother who for a moment felt a glimmer of hope. She had a daughter who was possessed of a demon and she had heard what Jesus had done. And so she determined to find him. Verse 25 says, A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Mark says, Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Mark, if we had been reading from chapter 1, verse 1, right up to this point, Mark has been leading us along with Jesus to follow him along the way. And one of the things that has become clear in this journey with Jesus up to this point is that he has a very different understanding of what is clean and what is unclean, of what is acceptable to God and what is not acceptable to God, of who is acceptable and who is not, of who comprises the kingdom and who does not. He's taken in tax collectors and sinners as his disciples, and he's caught a lot of flack from that, for that from some of the religious leaders. He has touched lepers who were untouchable and cleansed them. It's not as though the uncleanliness of the leper uh, defiled Jesus. It was the holiness of Jesus that cleansed the leper. He has touched an unclean woman in chapter 5 who had an issue of blood and healed her. He has touched the corpse of a little girl and raised her to life. All of those things were acts of uncleanness by the Jewish traditional law, and Jesus just tramples it and says, no, I decide what is clean 
and unclean. He had conversed with a demoniac who had been living in a cemetery among the dead. He even confronted the holy people in chapter 7 about this very issue of what is clean and what is unclean in this public dispute. And then this story comes along, this strange story. We've been following Jesus through all of that, and now he's approached by this Gentile woman. She explains that her daughter is possessed of a devil. She wants her daughter delivered. And for the reader of the gospel, if you're reading Mark at this point, this is a no-brainer. This is a gimme. This is a two-foot putt, a slam dunk. There's no question about what's going to happen next. Absolutely no question. We know who Jesus is. We know what Jesus does with people like this. And we know what to expect, and we know what he's going to do, and we know what it's going to say. The next verse, I could read it without even having read the gospel yet. And Jesus, having compassion on her, touched her and told her her little girl would be healed. That's what we expect. We're almost ready to skip the paragraph and go on to the next story, but then the story does this dicey kind of thing. It throws us a knuckleball. It hits us from behind. We don't see this coming. Jesus rejects the request, and he does it rudely. You have to start to wonder, have we finally caught Jesus on a bad day? To begin with, he simply ignores her. In, in Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 23, says, but he did not answer her at all. Completely ignored this woman's request. What? He kept on walking. He let the phone kept ringing. He didn't pick up. Completely ignored her, please. What was he thinking? Does Jesus really take a day off? Then his disciples came up to him in Matthew's story, and they said, Lord, she's making lots of noise. She's bothering us. She's interrupting our silence, our retreat that we had looked forward to. Uh, grant her request, send her away, do something, but get rid of her. And the disciples urged, said, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. Jesus kept walking, and he answered his disciples. He said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not primarily, only. Not first, only. But this woman is not going to be easily denied. She finds her way in front of the parade and falls down before him. Matthew 15, 25 says, She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Mark says, She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. She begged him to do so. And Jesus not only refuses to look her in the eye, he keeps moving and seems to insult her, seems to treat her with contempt. He says in Mark 7, 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. No, she's an unclean Gentile. A Gentile dog, a woman, a Syrophoenician of that, a descendant of some of Israel's ancient enemies. She doesn't deserve to eat the bread that rightfully belongs to the children of God, to the Jews. So what do you think? Have we finally caught Jesus on a bad day? Did he get up on the wrong side of the mat? Was there nothing but decaf available that morning? Have the people finally gotten on his last nerve? Have we finally got to see him lose it? What's going on here? So, so un-Jesus of him. Wait, hit the pause button for a minute. Now, zoom in on his arm, on his right arm, his right wrist. Do you see it there, the leather band around it? Zoom in on it. Look at the letters on it. WWMDD. What would my disciples do? 
Perhaps Jesus is ignoring the woman to see what his disciples would do. Have they picked up yet on what it is he has been so thoroughly teaching them by word and deed? Has he taked up, taken up their attitude to see if they will see the folly of it and rebuke it? But no, they just ask him to get rid of her. They think she doesn't belong here. He replies to them, and he was only sent to the house of Israel. He reflects to them their own theology, that they are special, that they are unique. You're special. You're from Israel. The Messiah comes for you. You are the ones elected to privilege. Good call, he says. Let's send her away. And he watches them. What will they say? What will they do? Don't you want at least one disciple to step forward that, at this point and go, but master, what of all the Gentiles you've served? What about that sermon you preached in Nazareth when you got this whole ministry started and you said that you had come for the nations of the world, not just for the Jews? What about the Roman centurion, the servant you healed, and then you said there will be people like him coming from the east and the west and sitting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the great banquet feast in the kingdom. What about that, Jesus? Why don't you, Isn't she one of those? Will anyone intercede on her behalf? Will she, any of these disciples be touched with compassion for her need? Jesus waits and he waits. Will not one of them take up their cause? But no, no one challenges him. They all nod their heads except for the woman. She's not going to be denied. She will not leave. Her daughter's screams still echo in her ears. This is her last hope, and she persists. The disciples' theology and culture say that she's to be shunned and rejected, and Jesus has expressed that opinion perfectly with his words and his behavior. But she's not deterred. She runs and falls in front of the procession one more time. Help me, have mercy on me. And then Jesus delivers the final insult. He speaks to her. But now we don't have the video of this. We only have the text. But I suspect if we could uncover the video, while he says these words, he's not looking at her. He's looking at his disciples. My guess. He voices their theology. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now it's one thing to express contempt for people behind their backs, to objectify them, treat them as somewhat something contemptible in general. But it's another thing to hear the ugliness of our thoughts and feelings expressed in the very presence of the human being that we are holding in contempt, not seeing as one created in the image of God. And Jesus voices their hearts, their hearts, that place that he's just taught them is the source of everything that is evil and destructive. He calls her a Gentile dog. Now will someone please speak up for her? Would someone love her? Will someone among you find some compassion for her? Would someone empathize at this moment, this mother pleading for the life of her little girl? No. Nope. Not today, maybe another day. Today, it's F minuses all around. All 12 of them fail the test. And then Jesus turns to the woman and he, he removes his mask. 
the test is over. F minus for the 12, A plus for the woman, the outsider. His eyes meet her eyes, and she speaks again. She says, sir, even the dogs under the table get the children's crumbs. I'm not going anywhere. You have what I need. I'll wait for a crumb of grace to fall, and I'll be all over it. I'm a dog, I admit it. I don't deserve a crumb of grace from the hand of God, but I'll bet a crumb will hit the ground before long, and I'll not let it go to waste. This is my little girl we're talking about. Jesus speaks to her now without any pretense at all. Verse 29, he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew reports him saying also, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Now, I have to admit to you that this is one of the strangest stories in the Gospels altogether. Jesus' behavior there is puzzling. It's dumbfounding. There are different ways to read it. Some people have read it and thought that Jesus really did reject her and was persuaded by her persistence and her faith to grant her her request. But truthfully, that doesn't fit with everything we know about Jesus and non-Jewish people leading up to this point. If you read it from the Gospel of Matthew where the disciples are present, you could read it, sort of as I did, as a test of the disciples' understanding. Are they going to see the contradiction between Jesus' behavior and words here and the way he's been teaching them at this point and challenge that. Perhaps he was testing the disciples' faith. Some think that he was testing the woman's faith. That seems a particularly cruel thing to do in a situation like this, particularly with all of the, the contempt that's expressed there. It's hard to read. In Mark's gospel, however, the one we're looking at, the disciples aren't even mentioned. The only ones present in the story are Jesus and the woman. Oh, but there is one disciple present there, a disciple that has followed Jesus from the very beginning of the gospel up to now, a disciple that has been with him when he touched the lepers and when he cared for the people of Tyre earlier on. It's a disciple that has witnessed him as he has met the needs of the unclean and the outcast and called tax collectors and sinners to follow him. And that disciple is the reader of the gospel. It's you and me. We've seen all of that. And so we get to this point, and we're the ones who are supposed to be puzzled by Jesus' behavior. We're the ones who are supposed to take offense. We're the ones who are supposed to be confused and stumble over this discrepancy between everything Jesus has said and done up to this point and the way he's behaving in this moment. We're the ones who are supposed to be scandalized. We're the ones that are supposed to throw a flag and say, wait a minute, this is not how the kingdom of God is lived out. Jesus, what are you doing? If I don't take offense when I get to this story, I'm simply agreeing with that culture and mine that there are some people who just don't qualify for the kingdom. There are some people who are not to be admitted. There are some people who are less than I am. There are some people who, intruding on Jesus' presence and requesting relief for their little girl, really have no business doing so. I only demonstrate, if I don't find this offensive, I only demonstrate that I haven't gotten it yet. I'm still an outsider to the kingdom myself. I'm still blind and deaf to God's ways. I'm still trying to live life by this world's values and standards. I still see people who differ from me as the other. I'm closer to Pharisees than I am to the Messiah. And the story 
occurring where it does in Mark, right after that discussion about uncleanness and the heart. The story does scandalize me. It arrests me, it takes me into custody, and it interrogates me. It says, do you get it? Do you see it? Are you offended by this? Have you yet grasped what the kingdom of God is truly like? Do you know who is welcome? Do you regard others as less than you? Are they welcome to the bread of the kingdom, or do they have to wait for scraps of grace to fall at least? Yeah, you and I have been reared in a culture. We've breathed its air, we've drunk its water, we've eaten its food, we've lived and breathed it, and if we sit here and think that we haven't been infected by it to some degree, we're just dis deceiving ourselves. We live in a culture that regards people different than us as somehow the other and somehow less. That is what the kingdom has to overcome. Some of those people just become invisible to us. We don't see them in the course of our week. Some of them are people that we learn to critique based on our world standards. Women still get less than a full place at the table in much of the religious life of Baptists. Crumbs are still more common than slices of bread for them. Does that bother you? The poor, the homeless, the emotionally ill that are around us are mostly not on our radar. They're not visible to church folk like us as we come and go through the week. But they're under the underpasses and they're in various places in our life and they become invisible to us as we drive right by. They're sort of intrusions or threats at best. Does that bother you, the story asks? Immigrants and asylum seekers, many of whom are working hard to take care of themselves and their families back home while living in fear, many of whom are being separated from their children, are vilified in political and religious rhetoric all the time. How does that set with you as a kingdom citizen, the story asks? Even among Jesus' followers, one race despises another race regarding the other some way unclean. Are you okay with that, the story asks? Christian Democrats and Christian Republicans identify each other as the enemy of righteousness. What's your take on that, the story wants to know? Time would fail to inquire about many of the others that are part of our world that profess followers of Jesus regularly regard as unclean or defiled or simply as invisible and deserving no place at the table, certainly. Our terms and our labels for the other fill our sermons and our airwaves and our news reports and our writing. We call them the gays, the criminals, the Muslims, the liberals, the conservatives, the fundamentalists. The list goes on and on. All we have to do is label the other and then we can treat them as we please. I have to admit that all that labeling and ignoring and despising makes a kind of sense in this world's kingdom, the narrative this world lives by. Because this world lives by a narrative that is about fear and survival and power and conquest. And our terms and labels for the other help us to know who it is that is to be feared and despised and conquered. And we protect ourselves and we move to destroy, remove the other. That makes a kind of sense in this world. But I have to tell you, that kind of behavior is senseless in the narrative of the kingdom of God. 
It doesn't make any sense in the light of Christ's love for us and for all people. It doesn't make any sense in light of Christ's call for us to love our neighbors, ourselves, and to even love our enemies. It doesn't make any sense in a narrative that calls us to take up our cross and follow him. It doesn't make sense in light of his instruction to forego the great privilege of judging others and leaving that to God and of his insistence that uncleanness is something that is to be found in the heart, not in the exterior, not on the surface. So when I read this text in Mark, I think that what I'm supposed to do, I followed Jesus up to this point, I think I'm supposed to keep reading and following him. I'm supposed to see the way he alters these social and cultural and political and religious boundaries and just keep reading with him. And then I'm to follow him in chapter 8 into the Decapolis, the ten cities, mostly occupied, populated by Gentile people. He goes over to a place where there are a lot of Gentiles. And I'm supposed to be there when he takes bread and fish and breaks it and feeds a multitude of these Gentiles, not with crumbs that have fallen from the children's plate, but with full bread until they are able to be completely filled and there are baskets full of leftovers, just like he had done for Jewish believers in chapter 6. I'm supposed to follow him right into that and see that Jesus' intention is to pull all people into the kingdom who will respond. And when I'm done reading this story, or rather being read by it, I'm supposed to learn to abandon my exclusive theology and values that this culture still clings to my unclean heart and reflect on the grace and mercy I see in Jesus. My own heart is supposed to change this inner part of me from which good things or evil things flow. So... Jesus had this open heart for outsiders, and he wanted to share it with his followers. John Ortberg wrote, Father, Son, and Spirit are determined that the circle of love they share from all eternity should be ceaselessly, shamelessly inclusive. No one is left out except those who refuse to enter. Let's pray together. Our Father, the fear that is in the air we breathe around us, that our world generates, and we breathe it in, and we become afraid of each other. We breathe it in, and we, become, we lose our compassion for others. We breathe it in, and others become invisible to us. And we ask you, Father, to change our hearts. We want to be like our Lord Jesus in every way, and in particularly this one. Help us to learn to love as he loved, to see as he sees, and to be able to offer the bread of life of the kingdom to all who will receive it. Forgive us, Lord, for ever thinking ourselves to be more deserving than another, and ever to be aware that it is the crumbs of grace that have sustained us to this point. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.